Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. I've got a bit of a special treat for us today. My younger brother is in town celebrating my birthday with me. He is a fine carpenter by trade. So we often talk about metal and metallurgy. But another material I have a a deep respect for is wood. But my understanding and ability to shape or craft wood into an object absolutely pales in comparison to, to that of my brother's. The two of you have not had a, a chance to, to meet in person. Maybe someday we'll we'll make that happen. But uh, Chris, meet my brother Josh. Hello, Chris. How's it going? Good. Welcome to Off Hours. So a, a little gift my, my brother's often given me over the years as a, a birthday present. Uh, it's become somewhat of a, a tradition is the, the magazine Rob Report. The reason he would give it to me is because there's often some really nice watches in there. As we chatted about way back in episode two, one of my introductions to the world of high horology was through Rob Report and an article they had on the Star Caliber 2000. About six years ago, when when he gave me one of these particular magazines, I was stoked to find when when I opened it that the collector's addendum that's often packaged in with the Rob Report at, at year end on the front, there was a, a Patek Philippe, and I was like, ah, oh, I've worked on a Patek just like that. But it turned out I had indeed worked on this particular Patek Philippe, so it was a, a real treat for me to see something I, I had worked on uh, on the front of, of this magazine. It is nice seeing your work in print. I, I've had a, the uh, the pleasure of having my pens in a few magazines over the years, and it is nice seeing it out in, uh, out in the world and in print for people to see. Mm-hmm. Man, it's a far more tangible and, and lasting memento than sort of having things posted online somewhere only to to disappear a couple of years later. But uh, of course, being a talented young man, he had to go and show me up. And, and two years ago, uh, some work he had done that happened to, to land a Rob Report's ultimate home of 2016, which uh, was uh, quite, quite a feat. It was a surreal moment, for sure, when I realized uh, Rob Report had come in and taken pictures of this one home. So what what exactly had you done for that that particular house? There's a a few different things for that house. So one of them was a black walnut railing that was in the Grand Hall. So you walk through the foyer into the Grand Hall, and it went up three floors and we had made the railing for the whole way yeah it was it was just really cool because at the end it just had this fairly large uh curve to it that took a while to create so that it would be stable and lasting with a family with young kids running up and down it with their toys bashing into it it was kind of a shame seeing like you have like three and five year olds running around this staircase that you'd spend hours and hours making, but at the same time, nice to see it being used instead of just being put up and collecting dust. And you said this was made out of black walnut? Yeah, it was black walnut and then it had brass accents 
throughout it as well and it uh, we used this technique called um, make it metal where you could take different mediums and you can spray this fine powder of brass on top of it and it would adhere to it and then you can sand it to whatever finish you'd want and sheen you want there are some pieces that just took me like two weeks of sanding to get it to the point where it was acceptable our last house we had black walnut floors and Mm -hmm. to date they're they're still my favorite the favorite hardwood floors that i've ever seen it's such a gorgeous wood yeah exactly it's it's a very gorgeous wood yeah but i do know from experience that it's also not the hardest of hardwoods either we we definitely dinged Mm -hmm. up those floors pretty easily so i can't imagine that staircase is in uh pristine condition anymore if there were a couple of kids in the house i think it's charles eames that says it's not beautiful unless it's functional very true so you're working as as a fine carpenter then are you primarily working on architectural work like that or are you working on furniture what, what what's your primary focus um right now it's it's a bit of both um luckily you got to pay the bills so the architecture does that Right. Been doing a lot of kitchens has been my main focus lately, but we've had I've been able to work on a few pieces. I did a fairly large black walnut sliding door for one client's house that was about six feet wide, nine feet high, and it had some cutouts for uh, three panes of glass in it, and then had some kerf lines running up it as well to just for some aesthetic peel and break up the giant slab of wood that they had there and just give it some visual texture and play to the eye. That was a lot of fun. That took a while to build and and make it so that it could function properly as a door. And then did a white oak kitchen, which had some hand-cut dovetails in it. So that was, that was kind of fun just to throw in some of the finer sides of woodworking into this kitchen that was fairly modern and just kind of sleek but as you got closer to it there was all these little playful touches and the homeowner was very appreciative of that every time they walked in to check up on the kitchen they were just they left ecstatic and happy with a big goofy grin on their face That is one of the nice things about doing custom work for people who appreciate it is the they know exactly why they're they're paying for somebody to do the work that they're doing by hand instead of paying for just some generic mass-produced kitchen that you can get at Ikea or Home Depot or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like I, I've come to realize that anyone you talk to loves the idea of finely crafted furniture kitchen watches uh, jewelry it's the thing that usually catches them is the price tag (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately unfortunately our time is not free yeah exactly Uh, everyone likes to think that it's a lot cheaper than it is (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely i i like to explain to people how long things take and and then you know give them a give them sort of an idea of of how much you know how much time actually goes into this work and then they can start to relate it to their own work week because so for so many people 
you know, they'll hear, oh, it, it, it costs, you know, took 10 hours to do this. And they don't really think about things in 10 hours or whatever. And I said, you know, this took a month to make. And yeah. I said, you know, think about how much you got paid for the work that you did in the last month. And they start realizing, oh, okay. A, a lot of people also don't appreciate what you have to build upon to get to that point. It's not a, nothing of, nothing that you create is in a vacuum and, and it's all built upon the things that you've made in the past. So, you know, I've, I've sort of tongue in cheek, uh, you know, told people, oh, you know, this took 40 years to make and, and this took 42 years to make. And they're like, oh, that's, that's not realistic. I say, well, no, actually it is because it is based upon years of experience and, you know, the, the various things that I've made in the past, the places I've been to. So it's uh, the, the training I've had, the, those are all things that, that impact every piece that I make. And mm-hmm. if I made a piece 10 years later, then it would be very different than the one that I make today. So it's, all of that is built upon the work that you've done in the past. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, it's not like the Matrix where they can just load all the skills <laughs> into your head and you're good to go. Yeah, that, that's unfortunate. It would be nice some days to be able to just download that stuff into my brain because I, there's I have too many things that I need to learn. So speaking of things, learning things, where how did you get your start in woodworking? What's what's your background in this? Is this something that you, you worked on when you were a kid or what sort of got you into woodworking? John and I were very fortunate to have a father who's a bit of a jack of all trades. So he always incorporated all his kids, um, our sisters included, into what he was doing. He always encouraged me to help out and just kind of mess around with things as he's working. So I always had my hands on woodworking in some sense. I didn't really have the idea of pursuing it until my parents had sat me down and were just like, well, you've graduated high school now, so what do you want to do? I was thinking about pursuing music, but I was fortunate enough to realize that music was my escape from life and I didn't want to make it my job. Yeah. So I just randomly said woodworking. I was always intrigued by hand cut dovetails. And at the time, British Columbia was the only province that I hadn't been to. So I just typed in fine woodworking school in British Columbia. And sure enough, there was one, one of very few in Canada. And so I went and checked out. And a couple months later, there I was at the Inside Passage School of Fine Woodworking. Huh. Yeah, you know, you could have ended up a little closer to home. There is there is a, a nice studio out in uh, in Perth that, that you could have learned from as well, because Rosewood Studios is out here in Perth. Yeah, exactly. I think I, I don't know if I was just running away from my parents or what. The location of the inside passage definitely was appealing. Like it was five minute walk to the ocean in the middle of a forest. So that definitely pulled at the heartstrings a little bit and made my decision. And also the teacher there, Robert, and the owner of the school, Robert Van Norman, is just this incredible human being that is just a big teddy bear that wants to teach people a love for fine um, craftsmanship as a whole, not just with woodworking. Just who he is as a person was very... It just drew me in. So uh, off I went. 
Well, I can understand wanting to go out there, at least for the weather. That's far more pleasant than it is uh, in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. So how long were you at the Inside Passage school? I was there for two years. They offer a one-year program, and then you have the option of taking a two-year program. And both programs are very intensive. They're definitely not a bird course. I was there, I think I was putting in, on average... 70 hours a week in my first year while I was there. You you learn a lot while you're there. Robert really, he, he takes you from the ground up, teaches you your, your tools, what they are, what we use them for, how to sharpen them, how to take care of them. Then you move on to making your own hand planes, uh, just gaining a respect for the tools. I think probably in and around September, September, late September, October, you actually start building, building. Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice to hear that you're building some of your own tools. I know as a jeweler, probably 60% of the tools in my shop are things that I've made myself. And that's a pretty common thing for, for a lot of jewelers. And it, it certainly teaches you a lot about the things that you are going to make, because if you understand the tools themselves and how they work, you'll have a better understanding of how to use them and and when a tool is appropriate for the particular job that you've chosen. So I've always found that that's a, an incredible skill to have. Yeah, it was it was cool just to kind of dive into the world of metalworking for a little bit and learn about like the proper hardening processes and whether you do uh, the benefits of oil hardening versus air hardening and learning from your mistakes along the way of heating your metal up a little too far past the cherry red into white. <laughs> and you're just like, start again. You never really learn until you've had a chance to make mistakes like that and, and figure out exactly what you've done wrong and, and have to have to fix your mistakes or have to go back and rebuild completely from scratch. That's, that's a, a frustrating thing to have to do, but it's also incredibly informative and one of the nice things about school is that you have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I'm sitting down trying to learn watchmaking right now, and I, I regret not having gone through a, an intensive watch program in a similar vein because I, I didn't have that chance to make mistakes in a environment yeah. where you know there, was, there were no repercussions to it. Right now I have very limited time, so if I make a mistake, that's a significant amount of my time I've just wasted on it. Yeah, exactly. And that was... Uh... There's a saying that goes around fine craftsmen, but you can you can always tell a fine craftsman by how he fixes mistakes. And it's a bit of a joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. You're bound to run into mistakes because you overwork yourself sometimes and your brain gets foggy and next thing you know you've cut something too far and it's it's a valuable piece of wood that you need in order for the grain to line up properly and right. you got to figure out how to fix it i'm a bit of my own worst enemy in the sense that i don't thoroughly plan things out before i start so it's just kind of like fix it as you go but um at the same time it's a great way to learn but there's definitely some room for improvement on that part Planning is something that's important if you're going to avoid making certain mistakes. But 
at the same time, there's a serendipity to making things without a plan. And sometimes you run into a, a better solution to a problem because you, you hadn't, hadn't really thought about it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the watchmaker George Daniels was somewhat notorious for not thoroughly planning out his watches in advance. He'd essentially design what he wanted the dial to look like and make all the mechanics follow suit and, and come up with creative solutions along the way to make that happen. I have a good friend who's a, a knife maker, and uh, he has a somewhat similar approach to uh, turning any sort of mistake into a creative opportunity to do something new. For me, I just I get so excited at the prospect of a new idea. This is like 90% of the time when I just go gung-ho, it's because it's my own idea. When I have a client come, we sit down, we talk about it, and we go through it so, so meticulously that the plan is so set. I can't deviate it from it unless the wood dictates that I have to. Or something happens, uh, like a saw kicks back and puts a few little teeth marks in in the wood or something, um, which has happened. Yeah, I just get so excited that I just go for it. And then, like, I tried building my sister a knife a couple of years ago for Christmas, and I just went for it. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of... A lot of moments of like, dude, you, you should have planned this <laughs> Do you have an opportunity to do any work that's entirely your own and then put it up for sale? Or are you doing all work for customers to, to their requirements right now? Uh, right now, it's been a lot of just focusing on getting uh, the clientele up so that you can just pay the bills basically is is the stage I'm at. And I'm also I'm kind of selfish when it comes to my own creations and uh, like the wood I'm using. If I'm using a piece of wood I've had forever, I don't want to keep it because it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, my baby. And <laughs> I look at it at the final piece and you're just like, yeah. I don't want to sell this. Yeah, wood is so different than metal in that it's it is unique. Every piece of wood is a a completely unique piece, and with the metals that I'm working on, I, I don't have that attachment because it's I can recycle that metal and turn it into something else. Or you know, there's mm-hmm. there's no there's no uniqueness necessarily to that metal. Although I'm starting to play with some Damascus steel, and and that has unique character to it. I was about to say. Once you get into the Damascus, I think like once you put it into the acid and you pull it out and you see this crazy pattern and you're just like, this is gorgeous. Yeah, you start falling in love with a particular piece of metal and you're like, ah, I got to give that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I have a, a bit of a wood closet in my shop right now of just pieces that I've hoarded and you... Or just like I go to the wood supplier to pick up some stuff for one project and then I see a slew of other things that I want to buy. And you're just like, just a few things. And so like I found this piece of spalted figured maple and I was just like, I just, I gotta have it. And so 
I grabbed it and yeah, my bill ended up being like twice the amount that I initially was expecting it to be. Yeah, unfortunately, all the the interesting wood is ungodly expensive, and it's it's always mm. uh, always that. Yeah, way. I think like my favorite combination of wood is English brown oak and claral walnut, and yeah, the last time I looked at the board foot price of those, if you can even find them, it was just it. Yeah, it would make you cringe. You'd be there's a piece of that walnut at uh, the local wood place here in Ottawa that I go to, and every time I see the price on it, I cry because I'd love to make a table out of it. Like the one thing that, when it comes to wood, if you can find a a farmer that just mills wood in his spare time and you have the space to store it, the wood you get, it's usually, because it's off his property, is older growth. And if you can air dry it, the characteristics of air dried wood are just, they're second to none because you get, you get kiln dried wood from suppliers because they want uniform color throughout the um, their whole palette um, so that if you match them all up, they look like they came from the same tree. But you lose so much character in the wood. Like with black walnut, for instance, you get purples and pinks and grays. And then you still have the brown and uh, gold tones and the beige tones that you typically get. But you lose so much of like this deep, rich purple that you'll get. I, I'm fortunate. I've, I'm on a, a one-acre lot that has old sugar maples on it and i actually have to cut down a few in the next year because they're they're starting to have problems so i'm fortunate i'm going to have probably five or six thousand board feet of hard maple that i'm going to be able to uh, slab up so that's that i'm looking forward to being able to make some furniture out of that that's a pretty awesome opportunity that you have there to get your hands on some beautiful wood do you have any trees that are of substantial size? Uh, most of the ones that I'm looking at are, I'd say they're probably between 21 and 23 inches in diameter. Uh, so they're not incredibly massive, but they're large enough that I can do something interesting with. And I'll be able to get some good wood out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, a little jealous that you got some property that you can harvest. I got some pretty besheveled cedar bushes in my backyard and that's about it yeah that that doesn't make for anything interesting and uh, unfortunately for for me the cutting down the trees means that i lose my air conditioning because that's uh that's effectively how our house stays cool in the summer is that we're under we're under these 90 foot maple trees and so we don't get any direct sunlight on the house in the summer but there's still a couple that need to come down and at the very least, I've I've got an idea for a nice woodworking bench that I need to make and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. Maple's great for that. I have a... Mine's made out of soft maple, but I have a workbench uh, in my basement, and it's it's probably the perfect material for workbenches, really, is, is yeah. maple. Cause it's, especially sugar maple, because it's so hard. Um, it'll It'll take a beating. My watchmaker's bench has got a 
black walnut top on it. But I think for uh, for woodworking bench, I think I'm going to go for the maple. A good woodworking bench is, oh, man, it's... That's worth its weight in gold. Exactly. Like, it's, it's just one of those things where it's a good house is only as good as its foundations. And it's just a good woodworking bench will help you produce great projects. I would say a great foundation to start from, for sure. So apart from the, the bench, what would you say are some of the, the tools that are, are most indispensable to you? For me, it would be hand planes, for sure. Hand planes and chisels. With, with those two, uh, you can do quite a bit. There's a, like there's so many tools that... Um, like you just walk through Lee Valley and it's just tool on tool on tool on tool. You can get really specialized with some, but I think you get a good set of chisels and spend time making your own hand plane so that it's good. Or if you can invest in some quality hand planes, you'll you'll be off to a great start for sure. One invaluable tool as well is a handsaw. A good handsaw will 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 go a long way. Um, and I prefer a Japanese style where you pull instead of push, um, like you do with an American saw. One way of looking at it is like trying to push a blade of grass through your fingertips instead of pulling it. Because the saw blade is so thin that if you if you pull it, you have a far less chance of it flexing than if you're trying to push. I've always preferred Japanese saws as well. And, and yeah, as you pull on that blade, it puts it under tension, which I found is always made for a, a more accurate cut and, and certainly more, more pleasant. I, I've never been a particularly big fan of, of American saws. Now, one tool you haven't mentioned how do you feel about sandpaper sandpaper oh no i uh so here's here's where i'm at with sandpaper i've realized that there's some woods that just want to fight you every step of the way and with sandpaper you can get a finish sometimes faster than you can with a hand plane because the the likelihood of you getting tarot with sandpaper is far less. And also a lot of finishes that are being produced nowadays. Um, for instance, uh, Rubio Monocoat or Osmo, which are two European-based companies. They need that rough surface in order for the finish to adhere properly whereas if you're using a hand plane the the surface of the wood becomes burnished and shiny and that that those two finishes and other finishes are going to have a harder time adhering and curing properly on a hand plane surface so if you want to use a finish that cures and is a bit more durable than, say, like a French polish, also known as like shellac or a tongue oil, then sometimes you you, you got to use some sandpaper. And what I'll do sometimes just to help 
clean up machine marks is use my hand plane to take the machine marks off and then sand it, which might make some people cringe, but it's kind of one of those necessary evils to create a final product that I know will have proper longevity because I've gone through the necessary steps to make the finish adhere to the piece properly. Interesting. This is a revelation to me. This is a fresher out of school. You were uh, pretty hardcore against sandpaper. You were oh, yeah. more, more of a hand plane yeah, purist. Yeah. And, and there's like, there's some woods where it's, they're really friendly and lend well to hand planes. And yeah, if I can use a hand plane to finish the piece, I will. It's not to say I won't, but let's say a client wants it to be durable finish. And then I have to think of the other avenues. Oh, it's some may say that's compromising, but at the end of the day, you have to kind of choose where you're going to draw the line between your romanticism and your practicality. Because you can romanticize anything, but is it practical? So this is now speaking with the wisdom of years of experience on the job. Yeah. And another tool would be a a card scrape. I was going to say, I've been using a lot of card scrapers over the years just because even though it's slower, they... When the hand plane doesn't do the job, the card scraper is usually the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then then even within that, like you have scraper planes that will help as well, and which is uh, just it's kind of like taking your card scrape and putting it in a plane. Uh, but I use a, I use a ton of card scrapes, even if I am sanding and there's tear out in there, and I'm just having a harder time getting the tear out i'll just card scrape quickly and then sand over it again just so i have that um uniform surface so that when the finish goes on you don't have two different surface textures what are you referring to exactly when you say tear out that's the best place to start is all wood has a grain direction So I guess the way I've described it to people before is grain direction is, it's kind of like your fingers. It, uh, they bend one way, whereas if you push it the other, you'll break it. If you plane with the grain, you will get uh, the shavings you want where you're not pulling the wood, but you're at your you're taking a thin layer off. Whereas if you're going the opposite direction of the grain, it's kind of like pushing back on your fingers and eventually those fibers give way and uh, you tear out little chunks. I think one of the great ways of thinking about it is uh, think about it like uh, cat fur. If you mm-hmm. if you if you pet with the the direction of the fur, then you get this beautiful flat surface and that's the same as if you're you're uh, planing toward or with the grain of the uh, the wood, but if you rub the hand your hand the opposite way on the cat, then you get this uh, rough, fluffy look that isn't uh, yeah. isn't appealing. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but there's some woods where the the grain direction changes. 
Um, so like mahogany, that's kind of why mahogany looks striped, um, because the grain direction is changing in the wood. Those woods can be a bit of a pain in the butt to work with. Yeah, you run, run into similar problems when you deal with uh, something like a bird's eye maple or a burl, mm -hmm. and uh, you can get some beautiful looks out of them, but if you're not careful, you can have a nightmare of a time trying to finish that stuff. Yeah, the interesting thing with burls, there's really no grain direction to them. It's just kind of like this rat's nest of... Wood fibers. Yeah, exactly. And it's just all amalgamated together, and that's why they're so beautiful. And my teacher, Robert, at the Inside Passage, always described it as kind of like the moth to the flame. We're like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and then... It, it ends up biting you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I had that issue with a canoe paddle I decided to make a few years ago, and I was drawn to a piece of bird's eye maple, and quite a bit of tarot happened mm -hmm. as I, I tried to shape that. And mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was a frustrating experience. <laughs> I, I'm still pleased with the end result, mostly, but uh, there are a couple of spots where I had to put in a bit of wood filler. Yeah, and the thing with bird's eye maple, the eyes will just pop out, and you're mm -hmm. like, ah. Blind bird's eye. <laughs> yeah. So you've spoken about grain direction and, and wood dictating a, mm. a piece. What are some of the, the factors you are keeping in mind and taking to, into consideration as you're working on a piece? And what are the ways that, that you employ the benefits of, of grain direction in building a piece that's going to be durable and lasting? The grain direction plays a very integral role of the longevity of a peat. Say you have a, a stretcher for a chair that goes between the legs near the floor. And you take a section of wood and you cross cut where you have the end grain facing up towards the ceiling and down towards the floor. The likelihood of that piece breaking in half is pretty high. Just because now you just have a very short wood grain running parallel with the legs. And whereas if you had it running perpendicular to the legs, you have substantially longer wood grain. And so what can happen is even if you just kind of like have your foot go back and kick it, you can just split it right in half. There's less strength in that uh, cross-section of wood rather than a, a length of wood. Yeah, you lose the advantage of that long grain structure and mm -hmm. the strength that it provides by being across that whole length of the piece and, and you end up with a short a short cross section of the grain and it, it isn't nearly as strong. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, I guess you could argue like there's some woods that are stronger than others, but um, even within that own species that still applies. Um, and visually, even, I just don't even know why you would do that. Like that would just, it would be so odd to have just like a, a, cross-cut section as a stretcher for a leg but that there is um, just one example where you would want as as much grain length as you can get and then and there's woods like 
pine, for instance, the older pine um, has denser wood grain than the newer pine, um, just because it was growing for longer. And so that grain becomes tighter and tighter and tighter as time goes on, which lends itself to just being stronger. It's compacted together. These are like pretty extreme examples where you're putting that that wood under some pretty heavy stress. Um, the other thing about grain direction that a uh, few craftsmen don't know about and don't utilize is having the grain complement curves in a piece or complement just having like straight lines in a piece, for instance. And they call it a, a Cronovian uh, methodology to being a craftsman of wood. And they teach you that at the inside passage of how to take a piece of, of wood and essentially read it so that um, when you cut into that piece, you can have it so that the wood will complement what you're trying to create rather at, instead of just um, go at odds to what you're doing. It, it really blew my mind once I was able to wrap uh, my mind around the the method of doing that is like just still exciting today when you cut into a piece of wood and the grain follows your curve. It's, it's just really cool. Back to the canoe paddles. What heard I've not done this myself, but the the strongest canoe paddles are are made following a similar technique where you mm. actually start with your raw piece of wood and the old school way of putting an axe head into the wood to make your plank and, and just slowly working that axe head down through the wood with a, another hammer or tool and the wood will just naturally split along mm -hmm. the, the fibers and then to getting your, your rough shape done and then letting that air dry mm -hmm. and then going in and actually fine-tuning the, the canoe paddle it's a, a paddle that's much less likely to to break on you over time yeah, it's because you're you're um, kind of you're, you're letting the strengths of the wood tell you how to use it. Because if you if you get a tree that's all is is twisted, and you just cut sections out of it, the strength of that wood will be um, inferior to a wood that just grew straight of the same species, and you cut. And you just cut flitches out of it and in the same manner if you cut like eight quarter sections out of it because the the grain is running parallel on both the side and the top whereas the grain in a twisted tree won't be running parallel so you might have straight grain on the top but then if you look at the side it's running diagonally and that that also makes it a lot harder to work with mm. if you're using hand planes and um, or if you're just even if you're running it through the thickness planer, like you're gonna get a lot more tear out on a piece with the grain on the side if it's running at a diagonal. There's quite a bit of science to woodworking once you get down into it, and uh, it can kind of bothersome sometimes if you forget about that science and you run a piece through the thickness planer and it just starts kind of exploding 
Early on, you mentioned uh, music as a possible alternative for uh, for working. What type of music are you working on, and uh, is that something you still get up to these days? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's still something I get up to. It's and it always will be. Out of all my passions, music is is the greatest. It's kind of nice because a lot of music wood is incorporated into. And it's it's cool to see the other aspects of wood and the tonality of woods. But, uh, yeah, music is definitely something I still get up to. And when it comes to music, my interests uh, in genres are they're all over the place. And there'll be days where I go from listening to jazz to metal or uh, singer songwriter. Um, to classical all within an eight-hour shift of work just because I, I've just grown to appreciate music as a whole instead of specific genres. And it's kind of funny. It depends on the instrument. If I'm playing electric guitar, I have a tendency to play more funk. If I'm playing bass, more jazz. If I'm playing acoustic guitar, it's, it's singer-songwriter. Um, is it's, it's what I gravitate to, and I've been playing at acoustic a lot, and I've been writing songs quite a bit lately, and so it's been predominantly singer-songwriter is what I've been playing and listening to lately, but I will never hesitate to listen to some, some uh Keith Jarrett and Charlie Aiden playing some just beautiful jazz on piano and upright bass. Uh they have a great album called uh, Jasmine and it's just if you if you just want some great chill music to listen to when you got something to focus on or if you just need to calm down that's one of my favorite records or albums to listen to. Now, you've composed a number of songs yourself over the years and you've also made yourself a, a number of beautiful pieces of, of woodwork and uh not to to pick favorites and you're welcome to to mention more than one thing but there's a is there a particular piece of of music or or an object that you've crafted out of wood that sticks out in your mind as being one that you, you took a great deal of satisfaction in making if I were to pick one, it would be a chair that I made in my second year of school. It's a recreation of a chair that Vidar Malmsteen made, who was uh, a woodworker back in Denmark. He uh, This was back in 50s, 60s, and he just made this chair that was for a retirement home. <laughs> I... It's just it had some it had a sculpted back back splats that kind of cradled your lumbar, and um, but the the top rail was sculpted in a way where it was concave but not too concave to make you um, curl in on yourself. But then within that was also. Um, sculpted so that it dipped beneath your shoulder blades but still came up between them so that it didn't dig into your shoulder blades but supported your back still. Uh, that was a really fun piece because I got to incorporate 
a lot of what I learned at the school. But while I was at the school, the the joinery for the arm was not ridiculously complicated, but it was complicated enough for my teacher allowed us to do the chair with or without arm because it had a compound curve mortise and tenon um, where it joined the the leg. And I just was like, I just want to do one arm. My teacher was like, uh, why do you want to do one arm? And I was just like, it's for playing guitar. Because whenever I sit in a chair with both arms, you always have to sit in an angle because the body of the guitar hits the arm. So I was like, I just want to do one arm so I can sit back in the chair, but still have an armrest for my left arm when I um, am just sitting back and just resting for a second. And then you kind of have an armrest on the guitar for your, for me, for my right arm. So if you're a left-handed guitarist, you're kind of screwed. But uh, that that's a piece that sticks out to me and... I think even within that chair, my favorite part of the chair was given to me by the the wood itself. There's just this little street of figure, and it's the only figure on the chair, and it's on the the front of the left leg, and it comes down at an angle and then goes around to the corner towards the inside of the chair, and it's just this one little strip of figure. And it's just, it's one of those cool things that just reminds you when you look at it, it, no tree is the same. I think that's one of the things about woodworking that I really like and love, um, if I can, if I can use that word, is just how every piece of wood is different. And within that own piece of wood, it lends itself to a certain creation that another piece would and i just i respect just how a tree grows and i want to just use each piece of wood to what i feel would be the the most honorable creation for it because re- the, the reality is, is like that creation that we see outside is it lends so much to our life where it just it gives us oxygen so if we're going to cut it down, I want to make the most justified thing I can out of it. Yeah, it sheds a little bit of light on some of my morality towards woodworking. I think that's a perfect answer. I love the way you, you wove music and your your craft all together in one there. And we are of a similar proportion. And having sat on that chair, I can attest to how comfortable it is to sit on and and the way that it is sculpted to your back thank you i guess guess you touched upon it a little bit um earlier chris about just the the differences between i guess our mediums uh wood and metal Mm. Uh, is there anything else about woodworking that just uh, intrigues you um that uh working with metal lax well i've always i've always worked in wood in fact i i've worked in wood for much longer than metals uh, as a kid i i did woodworking although not fine woodworking my my father did 
a lot of uh, sort of DIY work and, you know, we ended up building a house at one point. So there, there's a lot of sort of carpentry work, basic carpentry work that's being done with that. Uh, but later on, I started doing more fine woodworking. And that's the type of woodworking that I tend to enjoy doing the most if I'm going to do it. And I find for that, I, I don't think I could ever do it professionally because I, first off, I hate using power tools, which immediately means that, you know, from a practical point of view, if you're trying to make money at it, it's it's difficult to do certain things like break down stock mm-hmm. into, into usable pieces without power tools at an effective pace. Uh, so for me, it's, it tends to be something that I do for pleasure and it's, uh, you know, it's something that I do to relax as opposed to, uh, trying to do things quickly. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had the space over the last few years to have a good woodworking setup. That's something that I have to change because I, I have some furniture I need to make. We have this horrible dining room table and chairs and, uh, we, we desperately need to replace it. And I, I've got a plan of of what I want to do for both, but I don't uh, I don't really want to pay somebody else to do it. I'd rather do it myself and uh, and enjoy that process. So for me, it's it's a very meditative process. It's enjoyable. Mm. It's less frenetic for for making things in metal. I, I have this need to make things quickly and and to, because I've got ideas that I want to get out, and I know that I need to make this thing and try it before I can make the thing that I actually want to make. And so a lot of it is, okay, let's get through this and, and get it made because I, I need to experiment with this and find out what works and what doesn't. Uh, I'm a little calmer when it comes to doing woodwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I, uh, um, I think I can relate to that where it's like my woodworking and music because it is, my music is very meditative. And then when it comes to woodworking, there are times where it can be meditative for sure. But at the end of the day, I gotta pay my uh, hydro bill. Yeah, exactly. And I do find as well with wood, I find that it's a bit more, a bit more forgiving for me because of the organic nature of it. I'm more forgiving of myself when something isn't absolutely perfect Mm. and the problem in metal is that i can work to such high tolerances and i usually do that if something isn't built properly or if something isn't exactly right i i'm very frustrated and i tend to either rebuild it or or get you know be be annoyed that it's it's made the way that it is whereas with wood the organic nature of it, the fact that it's going to move after you've finished mm. making it. I find that that's a little bit more, you know, it's a little more forgiving and I'm more forgiving of myself in terms of what I've made and what I've done uh, when I, when I do work in wood like that. Yeah. I guess the one thing, if you're ever going to start working with wood, you got to realize that it's still alive. Absolutely. It's just yeah. like, it's always absorbing moisture and letting moisture go with the seasons. So that's why like a door in your house, one season it closes and the other season it doesn't because the wood in the wall is moving. And sometimes that's frustrating. And sometimes you know, designing a table that's not going to crack on you is uh, incredibly frustrating. But at the same time, it's also liberating in that I don't have to work to the tolerances that I do when I work in metals. 
and yeah, uh, and sure. I think that that's that's something that I need to to do more of just to do that because as I said I, I'm never going to get out of that exacting nature when it comes to working in metal. That exacting nature lends itself well to to woodworking because if you're working with dense woods um, that are very hard, like Jatoba, for instance, um, and you have a, a very tight joint, if it's too tight, the wood can split on you potentially when you go to glue it together. So you need that exacting tolerances. But at the same time, like the Japanese um master craftsmen they like to work with softer woods so that um you can get more of a compression fit so some of those the houses that have been uh, built in japan it's all compression fit joints like there's no glue holding the house together it's all compression fit wood and i guess you have that a little bit with metal um some metals softer than others uh wood yeah yeah if you use like just take pine and take a hammer to it you, you can you can cut a piece of pine in half with a hammer if you wanted to um whereas if you try to do that with a piece of maple you you're gonna be there for a while so if you had one piece of advice for your your younger self just starting out and heading into the inside passage what would it be take yourself so seriously and i was so hard on myself when i made a mistake um that it would uh it would wreck me and it was i look back on it and i remember one mistake i made and my saw tilted past the line that i had drawn for my dovetail and i lost it I like stomped out of the school, slammed the door, went down to the ocean and just started hucking rocks into the water. Later on, when I was paring that wood away, this saw curve, like you didn't even see it. Like I pair past the saw curve that had went past my line anyways. So it's just like, don't take, like, don't take yourself so seriously. Like you gotta you gotta be able to laugh at yourself when you make some mistakes so that you can actually come at it with a calm, clear head instead of anger. Because anger just it always creates more mistakes. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, Follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. Beware if you want to attend the Inside Passion School of Fine Woodworking, which I highly recommend recommend if you want to learn some incredible skills for uh, woodworking that it's in a forest in bc and in said forest are bears and uh, they like to scavenge as bears do and one morning i had called in sick and all the houses in the area used wood-burning heat and furnaces so every morning my landlord would come out, load the wheelbarrow, and go back inside. So I hear this 
thud on metal, thinking it's the landlord loading his wheelbarrow. But it went on for like 20 minutes, so I'm like, there's no way his wheelbarrow is that big. So I got up, went to the door, and there's a black bear sitting right at my front door trying to get into this chest that I would lock my recycling in. It was probably about like three feet at the shoulders, but it was just like, sat down, slouched over, looking at this trunk, just pawing at it. And, uh... So I was like, this is amazing. So I got my camera and just filmed this bear uh, trying to get into this trunk. So then I just knocked on the window and he he or she looked at me and was like, all right. And just got up and sauntered off slowly and then proceeded to defecate in the middle of the driveway (laughs) as it was leaving (laughs) and then just kept going. Um, And that's just one of the few stories of bears that I have one the other one was I was biking home with my classmate and there was a bear at the end of my driveway and uh, a car came by and scared the bear up my driveway and all along the driveway are trees that are pretty dense so he probably just went straight on my driveway and we get to the end of my driveway and my classmate just goes good luck man hopefully I see you tomorrow and just <laughs> keeps biking and I'm like shoot 